Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. And now your host, Eyal Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's crazy to think that we are now on our seventh year. Don't ask me how that all just flew by, but it did. Man, time moves fast. And it's only because of you, the listeners. If you'd like us to stick around another seven years, and there's a few simple things you can do that would really, really help us out, I would endlessly appreciate if you would, number one, share our episodes with your friends, number two, post our episodes on your Facebook and Instagram, and tag me at Audio and at URM Academy, and of course, our guest, and number three, leave us reviews and five-star reviews wherever you can. We especially love iTunes reviews. Once again... Thank you for all the years and years of loyalty. I just want you to know that we will never charge you for this podcast, and I will always work as hard as possible to improve the episodes in every single way. All we ask in return is a share, a post, and tag us. Oh, and one last thing. Do you have a question you would like me to answer on an episode? I don't mean for a guest. I mean for me. It can be about anything. Email it to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at U-R-M dot A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. There's no dot com on that. It's exactly the way I spelled it. And use the subject line, answer me al. All right, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the URM podcast. My guest today is Francesco Ferrini, who is a pianist and composer who is well known for his orchestral arrangements as the keyboardist for Flesh God Apocalypse, which is uh, one of my favorite bands. He also has been the orchestrator on basically a who's who of sick bands records like Demu Borgir, Einstein Kills, Dragon Force, and many, many more. This guy is awesome. I present you, Francesco Ferrini. Welcome to the URM podcast. Hey, thanks so much. Dude, it's a pleasure to have you here. I know I probably said this last time we spoke, which was several years ago. I love your work, always have. And one of the things that has always drawn me to it is because I have an actual orchestral background, um, I always felt like when people said that metal and classical music are the same thing, I, it always pissed me off because it's not, you know, it's not, it's not the same thing. They're very, very different. And lots of times when I would hear bands use orchestration or a quote unquote orchestral classical influence, I just felt like it was bullshit and not necessarily bad music, but when people would say that the influence was classical music, I would think this is not it. This is just some guy with a keyboard that knows a harmonic minor scale. But when I hear the stuff you've done, both with Flesh God and for other bands, I don't know which bands you're allowed to say that you've worked with or not. So Whatever. It's all public, pretty much. Like, Do, they, do people know that you've worked with Demo? People know it. It was a, a fun story because uh, I actually worked on the record, but uh, I haven't actually written anything. I just took what whatever they did and turned it into um, you know a better result, giving it a better sound because I simply rearranged what they did with my uh, libraries and then returned it uh, like a, a 
full orchestration on what they delivered, which was absolutely uh, great. Uh, to uh, Jens, Jens Bogren from Fascination Studios, he just wanted me to uh, take the original lines and give them a you know a richer sound. That that's it. So that yeah. that means, of course, if you're properly orchestrating and not, uh, like you said before, uh, messing up over a keyboard, uh, that means, of course, assigning and and uh, arranging all the lines that I could I could um, that that I got from them. Uh, into you know proper properly orchestrated samples, which is uh, you know it's pretty much like working with a real orchestra, except you don't have really musicians, but all the craftsmanship is the same. Uh, and there's also more requested, uh, more, more, more craftsmanship is required in order to make them sound real. Uh, but that's a different thing. Uh, so yeah, I I did that, but. Um, there was <laughs> probably a, a, a small misunderstanding because probably someone started t- saying that I I I, I wrote uh, you know uh, the orchestrations for them, but uh, that's not the truth. Um, actually, uh, what happened is I, I just I, I haven't written anything. I just took whatever they had and made it sound better. So got it. But I guess point still being is that it. To me, it sounded authentic in oh, that thank you. it sounded properly orchestrated. Thank you. With the stuff with Flesh God, I feel like compositionally, I hear that it's one of the only bands I've heard, and I'm not trying to kiss your ass or anything, so sorry if it sounds that way, but like with Flesh God, it's one of the only bands I've heard where the orchestral influence sounds like it actually affects the writing I know that you have some songs with choruses and verses and stuff, but the way that the songs develop sound like the real thing to me. And then, yeah, and then projects where I've heard that you just orchestrate, it sounds properly well orchestrated, which is just not a common thing. Oh, thank you. In the metal world. And I'm curious your opinion. I think part of it is because you have two different styles of music that are already complete. You know, uh, it's an orchestra covers everything and a metal band also covers everything. And so getting them to work together almost shouldn't work. Mm. (laughs) And sometimes it it, it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) But you figured out how to make it work. So I'm curious, do you see it as two different things? If you look at the orchestral, (laughs) the symphonic side of things, there are things that you can't actually properly replicate within a metal arrangement, a symphonic metal arrangement, because you're basically with, you have uh, something really dynamic and really diverse in, in terms of, uh, of sounds and, and also, you, of course, dynamic layers that you can achieve. And uh, the loudness it, that you can achieve within an orchestra is very, very, you know, it's a very, very wide palette of, of, of different sounds and different dynamics. And what happens in metal is that that very wide spectrum is actually limited because you have distorted instruments, you have very punchy uh, drums, you have, you know, everything is really, really powerful all the time. Even in, if you have a, a song, even the, the most hollow parts where you have uh, perhaps less dynamic, less things happening, actually there is so much stuff, sonically speaking, happening. Frequency-wise. Frequency-wise, yeah. yes. Even, yeah. even in a ballad, even if you have a power ballad, still you have so much punch. The problem with orchestration is that you have to fight against it uh, most of the time. 
depending also on the position in the, in the harmonic spectrum that you are going to cover. Of course, for some sections, for some kind of sounds, it's kind of easier for them to stick out of the mix and they do it even, even too much sometimes. And uh, other sections are more delicate or, or, or complicated to, to blend with the metal department, let's say. So they can be really complete things. You can't exactly treat the orchestra as you would do uh, in many ways, yes, but in other ways, you can't really do it. You can really keep things in consideration, things that you perhaps you learn from textbooks. Uh, the same things don't exactly apply uh, to the metal world. That, that's what I'm saying. It's, uh, you have to uh, think outside the box and figure out ways to uh, overcome this constant sonic pressure that it comes from the band. That, that's the problem. So it's almost like if you were to do an orchestral arrangement that had no band, it would almost always have to be different because all that space that the band is taking up would suddenly be gone and it might be actually incomplete at that point. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about uh, people People very often ask me uh, about bass instruments like double basses or, um, I don't know, basses in, in, in like the bass section in, in a choir. And that's really, uh, that really depends on the nature of the instrument, of course, because... You know, hardly, you, you can hardly hear, uh, probably you will never hear double basses <laughs> in a symphonic metal mix uh, because uh, all the low end is driven by other things, not, not from orchestral basses, for sure. Uh, but there are bass instruments which uh, still have some content, uh, especially when they played really loud. I'm thinking about uh, bass trombones, for example. Uh, all the yeah brass yeah brass especially the yeah. very defined one because in the orchestral world in uh, in simple words uh, in simple words orchestral brass are divided into let's say the <laughs> the brass are divided into the brassy brass so the brassy the the, the more defined instruments like uh, trumpets trombones which uh, for the uh, you know the for in their uh, their their own sound is very very defined can be very metallic and punchy very brassy, I would say, uh, even if it's, if, it's, if it's a bit weird, weird to say. And the other ones, like uh, the French horns, for example, they sound more round and, and kind of mellow. Um, mm-hmm. They're also uh, different instruments. They, they have different construction techniques, so the sound is different. And they're used in... Uh, they can still be punchy, especially when you play... You know, I like to, for example, to, to double... Uh, sometimes chuggy uh, palm mutes on guitars and bass uh, with with low brass, you know, following that staccato yeah, patterns yeah, or accenting specific parts of a, of a riff. Uh, and somehow, even low brass, they have so many, so much harmonic content, even in the uh, medium and high register, and they still shine. They still stick out of the mix, even if, they're, if they're, the fundamental note is is very low. You know, if that makes sense. I also think that there's something in the timbre yeah. of a brass chorale, for instance, that when they are playing loud, it's like the essence of it or the, the energy of it has almost like a similar aggression that sometimes distorted guitars have. Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're right. It's hard to explain, but, they, but like when I hear like... Uh, you know, Finlandia or something. I mean, I could hear that shit on guitars for sure. For sure. 
Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone hasn't heard that, they should listen to it and see what I mean. Yeah. There's something about it that just sounds like it lends itself. And uh, interesting that you bring up double basses because um, actually on one of my band's records, we tried to use double basses because our bass player was an orchestral bass player. So we figured, why not? Man, it sounded like shit. <laughs> it did. Not because of the frequencies, but the... Muddiness. Yeah, and the timbre. Like, it sounded like this natural instrument kind of by itself in this sea of distortion. It just did not work together. No. You know, I can easily guess why. That They're simply double bass. Uh, they, they don't have this really punchy character. That, that they, I mean, they can play loud, but you don't have that that um, that drive that that you know you have on, on on brass for example or even on woodwinds or even on low choir sometimes it, there, there's so much air mm -hmm. even on tenors or bass uh, lines uh, on singers i mean when they scream when they sing really loud there's so much air that if you take it out Uh, some people ask me, uh, why do you, do you write tenors and basses on, on choir parts? Be I, I, I simply answer, because if you take away the male singers from a choir part, even if you have, yeah, you have guitar, distorted guitars and bass pretty much on the same area, but you will still get, uh, perceive even very subtly that something is missing if you just have altos and sopranos on a, on a, on a, even on a metal part. So there's still some so much content coming from the lowest uh, voices of the choir. That's, that's the same for even, even more for brass. That's the same for percussion, but strings are so mellow and they, there's, they're also the weakest section in the orchestra, but also in real life. That's why you need so many of them. Yeah. <laughs> if you, if you have a look, you have 15 violins and 10 violas, 10 cellos, and then you have three trombones, four trombones, They can match the volume in real orchestras and the punch, or they can even overpower strings very easily if you don't orchestrate properly or if you have a real orchestra and the conductor uh, doesn't, uh, or the players th themselves, if they don't know how to blend them well with others. Because uh, uh, loud dynamics, if I read forte on a, on a score, which means, you know, for uh, strong, loud uh, in Italian, it's uh, like the dynamic marking or... Uh, Dynamic marking, markings in classical music and orchestral music are all in Italian. So that, that's good for me, of course. <laughs> It just sounds right in Italian. Yeah. <laughs> so fortissimo, which is very loud. Yeah. Uh, fortissimo on a trombone is much, much louder than a fortissimo on a double bass. So if, but if, the two, if two players or two sections read fortissimo on, on a doubling, let's say on a, on a bass line, also in real life... Uh, the conductor or the players themselves would try a, a way, find a way to blend the two fortissimos mm -hmm. together to really play together and have a find a kind of a balance. Uh, strings will always be overpowered in a way, but if I have a if I have four tenor or bass trombone players and I ask them to blow really loud, really, really, really strongly on their instrument, they will wipe the whole string section away, com uh, like out, out, they will throw it out of the window completely. So it's, that's what happens in real life. <laughs> And the amount of power that the brass section has is kind of unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you, when you hear it done in real life, um, it's, 
I remember actually thinking back to the 90s uh, when my dad was trying to expand the orchestra. He got it to 96 players, which is not as big as it gets. He was trying to add still 10 more string players to that just for balance reasons. Oh, of course. (laughs) So when you're orchestrating something for a metal project, are you thinking about the fact that mix-wise, it might get buried and might be texture only? Like, is that part of the consideration? That's a a very (laughs) complex topic. First of all, yeah, I always consider that. I typically write the arrangement and try to blend them with the, the music that I have, the stems that you know, that I have on the, during the production. I try to blend them to, to have a balance between them, which is the balance that I, that I like. And I hope the band likes, or even if there's a, uh, there will be a difference if the band decides to give uh, the orchestra less prominence. So making, making it a little bit smaller, it will still work. I will still make sure that there's content, you know, that can be, and especially important things, I will still make sure that the important things that I want to be heard will be written in a way that won't be buried. Because I, now that I have experience, I, I know for sure what's the first things, uh, what, were, what, what are the first sections, the first instruments to be buried in a metal mix, and what are mm-hmm. the last ones uh, that will still stick out even if you keep the orchestra really low? But of course, I, I have typically 99% of the times, uh, besides flashcard, I don't have any control over the mix. I'm just being delivered from the bands after the process is done. Hey, what do you think? Maybe I get a preview before the. But sometimes I, I just hear it when the album is when the album is released. Sometimes I get. My arrangements completely change in balance, completely change in structure. I get them uh, mutilated. It's a bad word. I mean, I, I get them cut. <laughs> altered. Yeah, altered. Yes. So uh, I have absolutely no control over it. Sometimes the producer just uses uh, my stuff for as a, a pool of cool things to, you know, to, to pick up from time to time. Then all the rest is kind of, you know, gets buried or just... Uh, muted probably for example that of course the um, all the sections that will have less things to fight against like i'm thinking about violence you know violence high woodwinds high choir mm-hmm. that will of course more naturally more easily stick away stick out of the mix anyways but for the rest i just hope the producer is good enough because also there's a shortage in my opinion of producers uh, there's a so there are so many amazing metal producers for all the sub uh, you know all the different sub kinds of of metal uh, all the different languages, but uh, there's uh, a serious shortage in my opinion of uh, really 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 100% great uh, symphonic metal producers. I completely agree. Yeah, because it's a very very complicated thing uh, to to deal with. And it's a very specialized, uh, requires very specialized skills. So not every producer, every producer, every metal producer, extreme or power metal or thrash metal uh, can can actually do that. That's my experience, at least. There's not that ma- many bands who even do it well, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. So I think there's obviously even less mixers and producers who 
understand it well, which is a challenge. Yeah, I know that for sure that in the past, when some producers who weren't used to this genre of music, metal, got involved with some big symphonic metal band, I know for sure that some of them, sometimes they require some extra help or some consultation, you know, with other mixing engineer. I know for sure that that happened, this happened in the, in the past. And there are many producers also who are uh, specialized in this uh, kind of music. I'm thinking about Jens, of course, Jens Bogren, who is, uh, for me, is one of the best, if not the best, and Jacob Hansen also. Yeah, those two, those two are unbelievable. Uh, there's another one, man, I'm not going to pronounce his name well, but uh, I'll try. Uh, Joost van der Broek. Oh, Joost, Joost is a young producer. He's getting so big now. Rightly so. Years ago, he started, you know, he has, um, he, in the, in the past few years, I think he's, he's been building up quite a big and important name for his studios and, and for, you know, for, for himself. And it's unbelievable. Now he's got to work with Blind Guardian. Yeah. He's, um, because before he, for Epica as well, if Epica used to, to, to write and pre-produce with this guy, but now he's He's got so 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 good at mixing and mastering um, that now they go to him. They they they're just doing everything there at Sandlane in Holland. Yeah, good for him. He knows what he's doing. But yeah, man, I think Jens and Jacob are among the probably people are going to end up realizing that they're among the greatest ever at this point. Yeah, they're really nice, very cool, cool people. Uh, with Jacob, we found uh, perhaps I think the the main difference that they have a different approach. Uh, Jacob, maybe he is more uh, in general as a producer, is more into the extreme side of things. You know, he he's probably more experienced with the extreme bands like us. He did Aborted, he did Black Dahlia Murder, he did you know a number of of those. And Jens is more towards the power slash thrash metal or gothic or, you know, more uh, atmospheric kind of things. He produced some of my uh, favorite records of all times. And and I think they're both, I think in, uh, they're on the same level, top-notch, both of them in different ways. I completely, completely agree. When you're working on something that you know is going to go towards someone like that, does it, I guess, does it lower your anxiety level about what's going to happen to the orchestration? Yeah. I, if I work with a, with a producer I know, and I, I know what, you know, how he sounds like, I know what he will do in a way. I mean, I don't exactly know because, of course, it's a secret recipe, but I know for sure how it's it's going to sound at least in general, I know what the impact will be, even though, you know, each band can be, every band can be different. Every band can decide that, you know, maybe the, it's, it's better if keyboards or an orchestras, uh, orchestral instruments that, that if they just step aside, uh, at the end of the day. So even there, there's a, there's a margin of change, uh, from the band as well, or from the band's view, which is absolutely fine. Uh, other producers, I guess, uh, sometimes it's 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 not just the band asking for um, 
for let's say, because, because the first problem with the orchestration is that it's not just a matter of uh, perception and presence. You know, hey, here are all the cool lines that I re- that I wrote that are, you know half of them or all of them just disappeared and it's just noise. But it's not just uh, <laughs> my pride as a, an orchestrator, but also the 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 end re- the the final result is uh, an orchestra being just much smaller. So that kind of that cinematic vibe that you were searching for, if you just reduce the the general presence of the orchestral of all the orchestral instruments, or or you just keep it very much behind everything else, the it's not just that you're losing the detail, but you're also losing the presence of something big, which is not big anymore. It's supposed to sound big, like in the movies, but it's just some keyboard in the background. I think many, for in many cases, it's uh, yeah, it can be from the band. They don't want something else written by someone else to be too much on top of what they did because they're used to to listen to uh, their music in, in a different way than me, and that's fine. In other cases, it it might be the producer who can't really deliver uh, production a production which blends the two things very well. So. Uh, as long as as soon as you start putting the orchestra a little bit more out uh, and m- making it more present, all the other instruments are uh, affected in a bad way. Uh, the perception that you have of them is kind of being blurred. Uh, so, or some sometimes it's not even the, it's even maybe the producer. Uh, it happens to me. It happened to me in the earlier days that uh, you know. Uh, producer telling you, yeah, you, you know, if you do that, if you just push the orchestra this high, it will ruin everything just because they can't deal with it. You know, I know producers like Jens who can keep the same presence uh, on the uh, on the, the the metal instruments. At the same time, he can deliver a stunning orchestral production. He can blend very well the two things. I do remember in earlier days of my career trying to get mixers to blend synth and orchestra with metal and they just didn't seem to understand that you could have both existing and being powerful at the same time the theory was if you make the orchestra louder you're going to kill the guitars and what's metal without powerful guitars and they're kind of right absolutely yeah they're right like you need powerful guitars and guitars do swallow a lot of a lot of the frequency range but we know that it's completely possible to make it work it is also because the the, the problem is what you expect if you if you expect to work with your usual uh, template with your usual workflow where you have your uh, the most powerful guitar sound the most powerful drum sound the most powerful everything except keyboards or orchestras then of course you have to to go towards towards uh, huge compromises in the orchestral department yeah to make decisions yeah but if you want the orchestra to be a protagonist in your music then you have to accept that you can have the kill switch engage or the same guitar sound as kill switch engage or Meshuga or whoever, you know, has a, a great, very rich guitar sound or Lamb of God. You can't have Lamb of God guitars and at the same time, a huge symphonic orchestra behind it because it's, it's not going to work anyway, even with the best producer in the world. So when you're working on your own stuff, on the Flesh God stuff, 
I mean, the guitars are pretty intense, but do you feel like when those parts are put together, that's taken into consideration? A great producer who is experienced enough in this can make your guitars sound huge anyways, because he, he will make sacrifices. He will do so. He will reach compromises in the guitar sound, but without having you noticing it that much. If you take King, Jens produced King, and he, that's a very heavily layered album. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it, guitars there are simply different from any other purely metal band. They're not the same. It's not the same guitar sound, but it's still a death metal. It's, it's still a beautiful death metal sound. It's just he found ways to carve space for orchestra, for, for orchestral instruments, even very some sections which are... Uh, traditionally very hard to mix. He found a way to carve space. Uh, you also had him on you know, the mix, right? Doing septic flesh. Several times. Yeah. So he found like very uh, surgical ways to blend the these apparently completely different and, and opposite world together. And it works wonderfully. Uh, same for Jacob. Jacob, if you, if you see, uh, I don't even understand everything that happens in into inside his template because it's some stuff. It's just, uh, I don't know what, what's going on, man. It's, it's just, uh, insane. It's, it's, it's not just, he's just, it's not like he's just putting, taking my stems and putting them on top of everything with a bit of reverb and EQ. He's doing crazy things to the mix. And that's, that's how it works. Even, even half DB, even, even a few, a few inches of, of any, Set of, of anything, of every single thing can make a, a difference altogether. So the right producer is the key. Do you think basically the approach, we're going to work with someone who actually knows how to deal with this stuff so we can, we can go as crazy as we want? Or are you thinking about how it's potentially going to work together? Like when you've got the guitars versus the orchestra in the composition and arrangement phase. Now today, after <laughs> 10 years uh, writing, you know, doing this thing with Flashcut, you know, having heavy orchestral arrangements, heavily layered orchestral arrangements uh, on extreme music, on metal music in general. I, I think that for sure, I know, I know now what one will never work. I, I have enough experience to say that there are things that I perhaps I was doing back in the early, in my early days, and we were doing back then, uh, we were convinced that some stuff that we, we were writing was in the, in the final mix would have enough importance. Uh, but, uh, there are things, you know, that are impossible to, 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 to blend together, or there are things that will never really shine in a metal mix. No matter how much you want it to. <laughs> No, I mean, also sometimes it's counterintuitive with the orchestra. It's counterintuitive. Sometimes when you have so much stuff going on, like if you have a blast beat and a complicated riff uh, underneath and vocals and different layers of vocals, maybe it's a chorus. You think, yeah, maybe on this chorus, on this very open part, you, you imagine the orchestra being even louder, but perhaps it's just, it's even simpler. Maybe there, yeah, there's so much stuff going on, but in terms of uh, details or in terms of things happening in specific registers, it, it's actually less th less stuff be just because um, they're kind of completing each other. 
sometimes. Some other times, it's a mixing thing that you have to take into consideration when you're pre-producing an album. That's why now I still have a few uh, tricks for, I mean, very basic tricks that uh, Jens told me in the past when we were, because I, I mixed the orchestral version of King here in Italy and uh, he was kind enough to give us suggestions. And he was also kind enough to share some of the tricks he used on, also on the mix of the actual album. So some of these tricks, uh, I'm still using them today, like very simple one, applying different kind of different amounts of reverb, uh, depending on the register that if it's more crowded or depending on the part of the song you're working on. So if it's more kind of hectic or more, you know, uh, bombastic or, or more dynamic or faster, maybe you, you apply, you know, different kind of reverb automations, different reverb sand, depending on the section. Uh, you can also have uh, some section, it's, it can be also cool to have just early reflections and no tail, just to get the initial, the, the kind of initial um, glue for, for, for the section, but then you don't have the annoying tail getting over, uh, getting in the way of other instruments. That's one thing. Another thing is that we tend to write stuff with a project which has some basic mastering on top, and the orchestra is processed. Back in the days, we just used to put a bit of reverb and <laughs> that was it because we weren't experienced enough. But now we have at least some knowledge to put some basic production chains on both the orchestral bus and uh, all the metal sections, the metal instruments. So now I think our pre-production sound uh, a bit closer than they used to be. Uh, to the final product. So it's easier It's easier to understand how it'll work or not work. For sure, you have to produce to actually put something on top of uh, everything uh, or at least the orchestra itself because the orchestra itself is so dynamic and it's moving so much. If you, if you look at the stems, even if all the instruments are playing really loud, it's the content there is so dynamic compared to distorted instruments, compared to sample drums uh, and stuff like that, which is always so punchy, um, that you have to kind of fight it and, and make it shine somehow. So a bit of multiband compression, uh, EQ and limiting on the orchestra can help a lot, like giving the orchestra more presence and less dynamism where otherwise you will just have to uh, have a, to, to, to provide an insane and uh, not human, like inhuman amount of automations. But automations are very useful, but they're not enough because the nature of the orchestral sound is very different. So you need, you know, a technological help. Multiband compression and, and standard compression, a bit of glue compression, in my opinion, and limiting on the orchestral buzz is, is a, makes a huge difference. I have students uh, because I, I also do, I give online lessons and some of them, with some of them, it's just, you know, they, they don't know how to, they, they think the arrangement is wrong. There's something wrong in the arrangement. And sometimes it's just a mixing issue. And I just tell them, why don't you try with, uh, uh, with this trick and, or with this very cheap plugin or with some of the stock plugins from your DAW, uh, try to do this, try to do that. A couple of steps that I, that always work. It's because the nature of the of the way that the sound is produced, or just the nature of these instruments, is completely different. It's just you know you have one one thing playing that has zero dynamics, 
whatsoever, and it's just like a train <laughs> that's going to destroy yeah. everything in its path. And then you have this other thing that is all dynamics, all natural, as powerful as it could be. It's going to get destroyed by that train if you don't if you don't help it. Yeah, or go, or, or in some cases, it's if you get uh, what you think it's a proper balance then that balance is being destroyed and the next time, uh, uh, I don't know, low brass kicking at their natural volume, at the natural balance uh, with the other instruments uh, or also simply frequencies in the in orchestral instruments, they, they move so much. Uh, it's like uh, each one of them is almost like a, a vocal stem. You know, vocal stems can move uh, in terms of volume, but also frequencies, they change so much. And that's the same uh, for orchestral instruments. Uh, besides being very, um, there, there's so much different timbers, but also each timber in itself has so many different nuances, even in a, in a matter of seconds, uh, and different techniques that sounds completely different. So it's it's very difficult without any uh, help from compression chain or something similar. I mean, that's one of the reasons that if you look at a vocal stem, a process vocal stem, oftentimes it's going to look like a complete square. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna, it's gonna, if, yeah. you actually, if you look at it, it it's a brick. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> an, it's just like a fucking wall. And then you hear it and it doesn't sound like a distorted piece of shit. Yeah. It looks like a distorted yeah. piece of shit, but you just kind of need to do that kind of stuff to vocals because, yeah, because of how dynamic the human voice is. Yeah, of course. And you can't expect to treat the orchestra alone as you would do when the orchestra is on the part, is on the song. It's, it's, a, it's a different story. I remember once uh, we were producing King and uh, Jens was sending uh, test mixes for each song. And there was this song where there's uh, this orchestral like break. It's a very simple one. He probably forgot or he didn't think about kind of loosening the, the overall amount of compression that he put on the orchestra or on subsection of it, some sections of it. So <laughs> the, the whole part was supposed to be kind of a drop, you know, dynamically. You have just uh, the whole band, the full band, then all of a sudden just orchestra, but kind of a, a mellow sounding buildup starting from a very low level and then building up to into getting the band back back on again but man it was just uh, <laughs> the first bars were just double basses and some some subtle percussions and they sounded like fucking like like a manowar concert that they were completely that <laughs> they sounded like like uh, that completely squashed because that's how he makes he, he would make you know the, the the orchestra sound right on the record. If even if it's completely let's say destroyed dynamically, you don't you don't notice that because there's so much stuff going on and eating all the transients. So you 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 hear it as a beautiful thing and something which is embracing everything on the song. Then when it's alone, you know I just my, my note was just okay that 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 part is not right at all. Just take away some whatever you did uh, to, to, to the orchestra. And then it sounded right. But at first it was scared. I was scared even because it was, wow, is it sounding like that on the, on the song? Uh, it, it was insane. 
But the important thing, <laughs> the important thing in a mix is how things sound together, how you perceive well, yeah, them it's, together. It's a mix. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I think I think a lot of people forget that it's called a mix for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> that's the problem with, yeah, I have this huge guitar sound and I want to keep it, but I, at the same time, I want the same symphonic arrangements uh, as Demo or Epica. That, that, that's not going to work. It's, it's, it's just like that. It's, it's, you have to find ways to carve each sound into, into another one. You can't just blend two beautiful and incredibly rich things together without sacrificing or cutting or, or, you know, finding a way to make them coexist. That's the problem. You know, one of the things that I love about Demo, and I've pointed this out, for instance, about Death Cult Armageddon many times, is I love the way that album sounds. Always have. I think it's great. I love the way it's written. I love the way it sounds. But if you, you know, if you listen closely, the guitar sound is not huge and the guitar parts themselves are oftentimes very simple. They're exactly what they need to be in order to allow the orchestra to shine. It's very, very well written. It's not this insane guitar playing. It's, I mean, some of it is, you know, pretty fast, but... Overall, it's very well designed for an orchestra to work with it and blast beats. Yeah. Also because, yo, you know, that was Nicholas Barker, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, who was who, who mixed it? Uh, Frederick Nordstrom. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful, beautiful mix. Uh, Andy Snipney uh, did the, the following one, right? Abracadabra. Yeah. 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 That's right. That's what it's called. He's great too. All those guys, all those guys are great. It was great. Uh, we were trying to find uh, interviews uh, where during the production of uh, Labyrinth. I remember us snooping for uh, interviews and, and uh, hints from Andy Snape on, on forums. And yeah, Good luck. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Back then, I mean, nowadays, I think what, what's really amazing of these times is, is you know, thanks to people like you guys or other people around the internet, there's so much information uh, available compared to when I started, which was, uh, yeah. I know. Man, all, all we had was the Andy Sneap forum and every once in a while he would make a very simple post <laughs> with like almost no info. It would be stuff like, yeah, just add a little distortion to the bass. Sounds great. Essential. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, if you've never put distortion on a bass and you're mixing metal, then that's going to be a breakthrough thing. <laughs> but his tips were like one or two sentences always. Man, that's all that was available. And that actually helped me a lot. Even, even that helped me a lot because it, it was more than nothing. But yeah, now you can really learn how to do this stuff. Besides that, I, I still think that there's maybe because it's a niche, but it's actually amazing because there are so many big bands doing that, blending symphonic uh, with um, rock or metal. I mean, there's so much about, I don't know, uh, camper profiles, uh, which is great, of course, but there's so little for, you know, actual like tutorials, video, um, uh, videos, or, or, or I don't know, books or 
stuff, resources in general for proper ones, at least, for symphonic metal or symphonic rock. That's why people sometimes are kind of desperate. And that's why I get at times so many students, because it's they're like, hey, but I couldn't find anything on this topic. It's weird in a way. It's, it's one of actually my goals for next year is to add quite a bit of that stuff. Part of it, man, is that there's not that many people who do it well. Yeah, probably. So yeah. there's a lot more people who do Kemper profiles <laughs> well. That's one. Two, there's not as many people who make the kind of music too. I mean, there's a lot, but just not as many. And it's there's just less. And then... Uh, not every band is as cool as you guys or Septic Flesh. Some of these bands that do this stuff act like they're, you know, the fucking CIA or something and don't want anything to do with them shown to any students or the public whatsoever. Like, it's they're not cool with it. And so it makes it harder. Like, I really appreciate that you guys allowed the violation on Nail the Mix. It's really cool that septic flesh allowed us to do that stuff. And uh, believe me, if we were able to get more of the great orchestral metal bands, we would. They're not all philosophically into it. Or maybe I haven't approached them the right way. Maybe. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before, and if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multi-tracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Angels and Airwaves, Knock Loose, Opeth, Meshuggah, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others over 60 at this point. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song on the album and takes your questions live on air. And these are guys like TLA, Will Putney, Jens Bogren, Dan Lancaster, Tui Madsen, Andrew Wade, and many, many more. You'll also get access to MixLab, which is our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, as well as Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multitracks cleared for use in your portfolio so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those of you who really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhance, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, low end, and so forth. It's over 500 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-ones, which are basically office hour sessions with us, and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes and fix it up and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills in your audio career, head over to urm.academy to find out more. I'm interested to know when you have these massive arrangements that, let's be real, like probably not going to go on tour with an orchestra. Might do some shows with orchestras, but probably touring like a full-scale tour with a full orchestra is unrealistic. 
So how do you decide what is actually going to be played? Yeah, uh, we the, the, our best attempt towards something like that, uh, touring with an ensemble was wiped out by COVID. So uh, yeah, last year, you know, we, we had that string quintet tour uh, in the US, uh, but it was canceled because of uh, the, the, the pandemic. But yeah, full like full symphonic ensemble, I, I, I doubt there's, uh, unless you're Hans Zimmer, I think that's- It's not gonna happen. <laughs> that's once in a lifetime, or if there's a huge production, like uh, Demo did it for at, at Wacken, uh, if there's a huge production, a huge budget behind it. Uh, Septic Flesh did it in Mexico a couple of years ago, three years ago. Don't but these are one-time events. Yeah, yeah, one-time events. Touring is, I doubt there's an option for that besides bringing some smaller ensembles at this level, at least. When it comes to playing, what we did was, at first when Agony came out, since it was, uh, uh, the, the orchestra was pretty intense and uh, the orchestral arrangements, I mean, so we decided um, to, I decided to double with a keyboard strings uh, patch uh, to double as much as I could of a string parts. Of course, that's not always possible. Sometimes it's absolutely not human. For the keyboard, I, I had to reduce the part to what was humanly uh, possible. And of course, all the rest, all the time we have stereo baking tracks, of course, because it's the only way you can deliver uh, also a realistic orchestral sounds uh, sound live because it, there's no way I could replicate the programming of what I did with samples uh, using a keyboard, even if I use the same libraries, which I don't, I don't do it, but uh, <laughs> I used just a plasticky uh, keyboard sound back then. And I, we would blend it with uh, the baking tracks, uh, but it, it, there's no way to, even if with the most advanced sample libraries, you can't, uh, unless, even if you're really, really a great piano player, you, you can't really exactly replicate the accuracy and all the uh, nuances of what you programmed on, on uh, you know, on your project. Uh, doubling is a, can be a key. You know, doubling. I, I think you know if you if you take Nightwish, um, the uh, the keyboard player from Nightwish, he's basically doubling the string part with an orchestral patch from his keyboard. And when he's not playing piano, so in some other times he has a dedicated uh, part. Like me now, from from at some point we decided that since we have the upright piano on stage, we I have this fancy uh, keyboard stand, the fanciest and and heaviest keyboard stand in the in the in, <laughs> on the planet. Um, we decided that we will bring the piano uh, like a piano part all over the song. So we decided that I would play the piano. Uh, I will record a piano part, which is a, a has an independent part. Sometimes I'm, I'm doubling orchestral parts or strings. Some other parts. Some other times I'm I'm doubling guitars with that. Uh, the piano is is a beautiful instrument because you can explore so many different atmospheres and all the registers. You have the widest extension there is. So I can kind of double with a very loud, like kind of ominous and metallic piano parts, uh, whatever is happening in the guitar department or the bass department. Some other times I use it like uh, as a, some kind of shimmering tool to, to add some high end with arpeggios or, you know, some kind of a music box effect. Some other times I just play chords if it's cool. So I do 
number of things which are sometimes completely unrelated and independent, but they are more on the live aspect of the show. So I can, if there's a piano part, I people can see actually, can actually see me playing it. And it's, I'm playing, as I'm playing something, something completely different compared to the orchestra. The orchestra is doing uh, its own thing and I'm doing my own thing. So I'm a musician on stage with the piano and it's like a piano concerto concept in a way. Uh, so I'm I'm not doubling strings anymore. I'm just playing a, an independent piano part, which is I think we are the only death metal band with a with a yeah. Constant, I think so. Yeah, I think that there's no other met, death metal band or extreme metal band with a with a full complete uh, piano part from the beginning of the song to the end, pretty much like you know, like an, it's an old fashioned, almost jazzy <laughs> concept, but. Uh, we found it works because piano can be a beautiful color, you know, can add some beautiful textures or uh, aggressiveness, more punch to guitars. If you blend it, if you really smash on the keyboard, uh, it can produce a quite a metallic sound, uh, which is cool for, you can hear it in, in uh, horror scores, for example, very often. So piano is, is capable of beautiful things and that's how we, we use it. There's not that many actual piano players in metal to begin with piano a pure piano no no there's a lot of people that play keyboards which is a different kind of thing with a piano sound yeah with a piano sound or some weird video game from the 80s sound but uh actual pianists that's almost doesn't exist it's a concept we incorporated because it it blends i mean it's the only way to incorporate a keyboardist uh, within an ensemble which is uh, you know pretending to to play classical music with, with elect electric guitars it wouldn't make sense for me to have an extend and I have a, a yamaha motif or uh, a nord uh, <laughs> nord lead keyboard uh, on stage also visually i mean um, if you if you if you understand what I, what i what I mean uh, here, it wouldn't make sense. It would be uh, ridiculous because we are dressed as like as Victorian, like old fashioned. We have these costumes re resembling like people from the past who are, are dead and resurrected and started playing music with uh, classical music in a modern way. And so the only way to, to have me on stage would have been to, to, to incorporate that decadent imagery with uh, uh, on the instrument as well. That's why we have uh, the upright piano shell because it blends so well with the image of the band. And that's why we are thinking of building uh, a portable uh, structure that we, went, we can bring with us on, on flights, you know, uh, to, to have like a piano case also when we have to, uh, when we have festivals and we have to fly there because otherwise there's no option. I had just have a keyboard with an extend and I cover the extend on the, in the front with a, with a black uh, blanket or something. It's the, the only way, you know? So we are thinking about bringing this important... <laughs> I think that's cooler. <laughs> yeah, it would be much better yeah, also visual because it's an important, philosophically speaking, the piano is, has a, such an important role in our music. Uh, also, we have every title track in our album uh, since the beginning in our albums, uh, the title track bringing the name of the album was the, the last track and it was a piano piece. So for, since Oracles. So it's even philosophically speaking, the piano and its 
you know, decadent uh, image related to classical music, so so so, so heavily related to, to classical music. It's it's just a must for us. We 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 have to find a way to avoid using extends and and uh, and keyboards uh, in the future. So we're thinking about this crazy portable shell divided in one or two luggages uh, or more so we can kind of build it up and hide the keyboard inside it when we play uh when we when we fly uh to the festival or whatever that sounds really cool actually and it makes perfect sense it would be incomplete also to have only part of the band look a certain way the whole thing needs to have the vibe that you're going for yeah, I, I I think so too. We we think so too. So that that's why we are that's why we started with piano and with this obsession with piano, uh, or you know, position to keyboards, of course, uh, because that's also why we don't have we don't use synth or keyboardish sounds in uh, in our music because it wouldn't make sense with the image. So live, it's the same thing. We just have these uh, stereo baking tracks with the full arrangement as realistic as it is on the record. We try to incorporate that uh, with uh, this decadent image of the of uh, an upright piano and me playing it. So it's 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 an image thing primarily. Image matters, man. It really, really does. What I'm curious about is uh, I'm. Just wondering, have you actually fucked around ever with period instruments or listened to them? Like, so, so say when a modern orchestra will get only brass instruments from the 1700s and via old shit and then try to use it to play. Have you ever heard what that sounds like? No, I've, I've never, personally, I've never had this, the, the, the chance to experiment with those. It's a disaster. Yeah, I believe it's, I mean, also because some of the, if you, since you mentioned brass, but brass uh, back then <laughs> weren't as well developed as they are uh, today or at least from the post-romantic period. So it's, it was impossible for them to play specific parts like the ones that you have today, no? Uh, right, like with, uh, uh, from modern composers, from the uh, late, um, 19th century or early 20th century and then from from then on would be impossible for french horn player from you know from the mozart times to play you know parts a modern french horn part because they they just had a limited set of intervals because they didn't have valves for to control them what i wonder about that time period is when i hear the period instruments Everything sounds so out of tune. <laughs> yeah. So shitty <laughs> compared to what I'm used to. What I wonder is if back then they also thought that it was out of tune or if that it was just, you know, that's what they had. It was normal. Nobody thought anything of it. So the problem is that the, the, our tuning system, that the tuning system that we take for granted now, the equal tempered system, it was, it's pretty much like a convention because for for decades for centuries for not only for decades there there has been a huge debate for having to to allow everyone on in Europe first then all over the world uh, to to have the same tuning system so there were different tuning systems back then uh, where the <laughs> the 40 um 440 hertz uh, was uh, uh 
just it's that's a convention we have and that's something that at some point everyone decided to use but back then there were different tuning systems uh, for the and mm-hmm. because you know the, the tuning system that the so-called overtones now I, I I'm thinking about the Italian term what is the Italian term uh, la serie di armonici, the, the overtone series. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, uh, the overtone series. Uh, the overtone series, it's uh, mathematically in physics. Uh, uh, that, that's not something that mathematically makes, uh, it, it, you, can, you, can ha- you can't really have perfect in, uh, in mathematical intervals. You have to kind of squeeze, uh, squeeze <laughs> some, of like them, them. some of yeah. them into a... Uh, uh, a well-defined system which acts uh, according to very, very strict rules. I mean, that, that's a really, really huge thing to talk about, but uh, to, to keep things simple, let's say that it's perfectly normal if you think of, it, probably if you, if, you, if you really actually listen to some pieces that you're listening today from the Bach era, for example, with a period instrument, with a period clavier uh, uh, harpsichord, or uh, uh, with a period ensemble using you know period instruments, it will probably sound so different and probably bad in some ways uh, for our uh, ears. It's it's very very hard to listen to. So speaking of tuning, I know EverTune is a new thing. I mean, not so new, but it's still new right? Like in the past 10 years, does the tuning of guitars or the lack thereof bother you when you're working on these orchestral arrangements? Like just the fact that guitars don't really want to be in tune. Yeah, that can be bothering at times. That's something that when we we, we start sketching and recording, when we are in the middle of the pre-production process, yeah, we always keep an eye on. Also because we are kind of fanatics of uh, these kind of things when you're starting probably that that's not incredibly evident when you you listen to uh, guitars distorted guitars alone especially if you have very heavy you know and, and complicated riffs but it's easy to miss it's easy to miss but as as soon as you start putting perfectly tuned samples uh which are even more in tune compared to real ensembles, even even if they're really good, mm-hmm. but samples typically they tend to be uh, perfectly, I mean, not all the libraries, but most of the libraries, they, they tend to have perfect tuning uh, as, you know, really sharp tuning. Yeah, that that's something that when you start putting keyboards or orchestral samples or other, you know, electronic instruments on on over guitars, which are not perfectly in tune, that, that's going, yeah, that, that's a problem. Uh, you can definitely hear uh, even very subtly that something is off. And that becomes even more evident when you have melodic lines, especially if they're simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have the, those bands and that those like kind of powerful solos on top of a orchestral bed, then if the, if the guitars are not perfectly in tune, then you have a problem. <laughs> Every the, the solo would sound ugly even yeah. if it's the best solo in the world. So it's. I feel like then it even makes it harder to mix well. Yeah, probably. Well, because something just sounds off about it, so it's hard to it's hard to judge what you're listening to because no matter what you do, it sounds wrong. Yeah, even if it's not wrong, I always found that to be the the most frustrating thing about blending guitars with anything else besides bass, you know, 
even that was a pain in the ass. But uh, anytime you start to blend other instruments with guitar, it that becomes a huge challenge. One of the ways that I got around it before Evertune existed was to program a synth bass first, then track the guitars on top of the synth bass, because then you have a perfect reference for it. So because if tracking guitars alone, I know a lot of people do guitars first, but it's really easy to just not, like we said, just not notice, especially low tunings. It's just harder. It's harder for the ear to decipher it. Or sometimes it even sounds kind of cool when, you know, one guitar is slight, just a little bit off from the other one. If that's all you're hearing, uh, the moment you start adding other things, like it just becomes a pile of shit. And, uh, and so I've just noticed that by programming the synth bass first, just it, it makes it impossible. Well, not impossible, but it makes it, if you're listening, it makes it impossible to have auto-tuned guitars because they'll sound like shit. And then from that point forward, then it makes life a lot easier with adding everything else. Yeah, during the, when we track, typically we have at least the orchestral sketch, but you're right. The most typical scenario is when you have your guitar. Uh, in our case, Francesco and Fabio, uh, Francesco Paoli and Fabio, our, new, our guitar player, they're tracking together, but Fabio is doing most of the, of the job. And of course, when he's tracking, he keeps guitars at a very, very loud level for himself. To, to record, to record. Mm -hmm. he can't really have a nice blend of orchestra, vocals, or other things. So probably you're right. If you do double tracking, we, uh, I, I believe with um, the last two releases, we double, track, uh, double tracked both guitars, left and right. So it's four, four, it was four guitars in total. You have a little bit of chorus effect. So that can soften or at least hide some tuning problems sometimes, but... Uh, they're still there. <laughs> and the problem is you go on for hours and you lose the sense of uh, pitch a little bit. You, you think that you're perfectly in tune, then you start listening everything at a proper volume and you realize that especially stuff like sustained power chords, when you get like, okay, we have this big soaring solo with a lot of strings and choir. Then you hear the power chord, a simple power chord, like a, like, and yeah. it's out of tune. And, and you're like, wow, uh, <laughs> it's, it's the simplest thing in, in, the, in the world. And it sounds like fucking shit, absolutely, 100%. And you have to redo it. Well, I can tell you, man, when tracking guitars, you have to be hearing so detailed because, you know, distorted guitar, there's so much noise and every little thing you do is going to is going to get heard. So you need to really, really be able to hear what you're doing when you're tracking so that so it's not fucked up. But what that means also is you can't have everything else that loud. Like, I mean, if you track with drums loud, it might feel cool while you're doing it. You might have more fun, but you're not going to be able to hear all the little details that make a difference. So I know a lot of guitar players who will track just to a click and it's because that's the only way that they can really, really hear all the nuance. But if you're tracking just to a click, it is a lot easier to end up with really tight out-of-tune tracks, which is just a disaster. 
when I have to track piano or I have to track when I record my MIDIs for uh, some of them I write, some of them I play when I have like some stuff that it's uh, taking some benefit from being played live, uh, I play it. And then I, 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 I adjust everything with, uh, with the sample library. But um, typically I, 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 I just solo the track uh, and I play it with uh, with a click because I'm playing very dynamic instruments and having other instruments on top uh, can distract me easily. Uh, I don't have tuning mm-hmm. problems though. So it's, uh, I mean, unless you're using a real piano all the time. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, yeah. But if you're using samples or if you're using, uh, there are stunning piano libraries nowadays. So it's when I, when I have... A very tight lead line. I I I rarely record on, on real pianos, also because there, when so there, there's so much stuff. Like in our music, it's much more flexible. I can decide. Okay, maybe I can switch to another sound because it's uh, if I record on a yeah on a beautiful grand piano, but then I have the takes and everything is there. I can't I can't tweak it, but there's a. Uh, to a certain amount, uh, but that there's no full flexibility. So we prefer to do to use samples uh, most of the times because it's, you know, if I, don't blame I, if, I, if I need a punchier sound at some point, I can even switch to another piano sound. If I want to tweak it or change the micings in, in real time, in no time like, like this, just uh, in, a, in a matter of clicks, I can do it. Yeah, if I want to adjust dynamics, if I want to increase dynamics at some point to get a, like a nastier piano sound, a, a punchier piano sound, I can do it. Uh, I can just re-export everything and resend it to uh, the producer. So it's, uh, it's very, uh, it's almost impossible for us, for, uh, for our sound to, to use uh, a real piano, both live and, and in studio. It's, it would be, maybe if you have a ballad, it's a different thing. If you have a piano uh, sonata, like the, 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 the title track, it's a different thing. But when it comes to playing piano on the song, it's the, uh, Absolutely, that there's nothing. Nothing can beat samples for our music. Makes sense. So we're almost out of time. We have some questions from the listeners that I'd love to ask you. Okay. Okay. First question from Joao Vitor: How would you practice orchestrations as a beginner? Like, how to start, and what are the main points to pay attention to when you're still very f- fresh? Should I try to rewrite songs I like from scratch in MIDI as practice? The answer to the last part of the question is yes, absolutely. Writing, listening to a lot of music and and trying to recreate and study what other composers or musicians that you like, that you love, that you cherish uh, did before you. Because that's the best way to learn. You can study, you know, lots of, a lot of of theory, a lot of books, but uh, there's nothing... Uh, as useful as active listening, and especially when you, when it comes to creating mm-hmm. orchestration, there's nothing such as uh, recreating music that you like. So dynamically, the the, the flow, the language, and uh, the actual what's happening. That if you start doing that, for sure, it will help. Nowadays, compared to what it it was back in the days, where you just had uh, very complicated textbooks and uh, a few forums. Nowadays, there's so much to... My, my also, my suggestion is not don't get discouraged from the uh, complexity of the topic, but try to learn. There's so many resources on orchestral music. There's a 
there are great channels. Like one of the, I think one of the most straightforward uh, in when it comes to orchestral programming for specific kinds of music, of course, but epic music, game scores and stuff like that. There's a guy, uh, he, he's a guy, he's from, from um, originally from Italy and he's called Alex Mukala. Uh, I don't know if you know him. I do not. He he's the biggest YouTuber. Uh, he has the biggest channel uh, and the the biggest uh, number of subscribers. Uh, if you search, and he's absolutely amazing as uh, at explaining complex things in simple terms. So I think that anybody can start writing uh, after just watching a, a few videos of him ex- explaining things. But most important. Try to put out music. Try to practice writing. Active listening and writing. Writing stuff will uh, make you realize that after a while you will look back at your early steps and you will realize that they probably suck unless you are a complete genius. Uh, uh, (laughs) But in my (laughs) case, if I look back at some of the stuff that I did back in the days, I'm, I'm horrified. So, But that's part of the process. You have to practice creativity and composition as much as you practice guitar or piano or any other instrument. Great answer. Question from Danny Saucier, which is, how do you keep yourself from overdoing it to the point where it detracts from the song rather than enhances it? That's really difficult. One of the most difficult things that you can try to overcome. And that comes, in my opinion, with uh, experience, musical taste in composition, orchestration, and in general, uh, anything that prevents you from overdoing is something that if you, if you have this tendency to, to overdo, you know, it, even with guitar, you can be uh, maybe a great guitarist, but maybe you tend to do uh, so many things that can become annoying or distracting and you lose the focus. The, so the focus, I think the focus is always the song and the flow that you want to create within the song. In terms of uh, orchestration, my suggestion is try to start from what you really want to hear first in the, in the foreground. Then uh, try to build a sketch out of that simple idea uh, using maybe the instrument that you had in mind at first or experimenting uh, and adding maybe just a chord sketch to it. And then when you have the bigger picture, try to carve all the details later. But first try to build the, the structure of your progression, song, chorus, composition, whatever. Have a, at least even partially, but a, a bigger horizontal picture in mind and try to, to define it. Then when it comes to properly orchestrate everything, then you will probably change things and, and change all the details, even in the composition itself, even in melodies or chords. But start with something which is not just, don't... don't don't focus on the same five seconds of music unless they sound perfect to you because then at some point you will realize you don't know how to go further. Uh, try to write more music first, the basic structure, and then build on top of everything. It's like, you know, you don't want to, to build a house starting from the rooftop. You want to start from the bottom. So it's the same thing. And it's the same way that illustrators will start with a pencil outline Yeah. or you know, composers used difficult. to write on the piano before they would orchestrate. But it's difficult because you think of orchestration like something incredibly complex, and you want you want to you want it to be amazing as the things that you hear outside right from the start. But don't be 
tempted to do that, to focus on three, 10 seconds of music only for days. Just go on, try to brainstorm, try to build a structure first. All right, question from Derek Ryan. How much music theory do you use when composing? Do you have to follow those laws of melody? <laughs> music theory is, you know, yeah, I, I thought music theory was much more important when I started but I think Einstein did, uh, said that imagination is more important than knowledge. Creativity yes. is, 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 is everything. Developing your own language is the most important thing. But music theory is absolutely useful. It's an essential tool to achieve something, you know, stuff that is really complex with orchestration. You can't really emulate the sound of some of the best composers from nowadays or from the past without knowing music theory at a good or great level or even uh, even more. But uh, there's also uh, the avoid just focusing for years, uh, just uh, obsessively focusing on theory because maybe you think that without all that theory, all that all those textbooks, you, you, you can't do anything uh, of value. Uh, some of the most beautiful music in... In, in rock music, uh, if I think of rock music that comes from people, uh, or even metal comes from people who has no knowledge, no, no music, no academic proper musical knowledge. Uh, they just follow their instinct. Even some composers, great composers, some of the most famous ones, like if you think of Hans Zimmer, he started with a basic uh, theoretical knowledge. Uh, he, he He's not the fanciest music theorist uh, out there, but he's uh, uh, one of the best composers uh, that ever lived. Uh, and nowadays he's one of the greatest composers we have. He's different from John Williams or Alan Silvestri or others, but the important thing is developing your own language, not obsessively studying textbooks uh, before putting anything, just, just practice composition, practice creativity. Again, it's the same concept. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that also Danny Elfman didn't start as a big theory guy. I could be completely wrong. I don't think he did. He was able to write and read music. For many years, people said he was a hummer. So uh, in Hollywood, the a hammer composer who was just humming melodies to a proper composer or orchestrator. That I don't think that's the case because he... I don't think that's true. No, uh, because he said that, you know, his lack of knowledge, he, he was just getting there with experience and with time he got there. Of course, he was helped by amazing people like uh, Steve Bartek, who is um, his orchestrator for uh, since the beginning. Because they played together, he was uh, a guitar, he's a guitar player, but he's also an amazing orchestrator. But at the same time, I know that Danny Elfman said that he spent hours and how countless hours on, 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 um, on the keyboard, like, trying to experiment with all the different sections and studying. So I think that uh, you don't have to be a music professor to start to, to write good orchestration. You can have uh, even... You know, a basic musical knowledge, basic musical theory is fine and is welcome, of course, uh, and will be better to have it. But don't be discouraged by the fact that there's people out there with uh, crazy diplomas or degrees or with a, with a clear academic path, which in theory that, that they know more than you because maybe they, they write worse, they can't write good music. That's the problem. Man, 
when I went to Berkeley, some of the professors of arrangement and theory wrote the worst music I've ever heard in my <laughs> entire life. And I mean, they were PhD level with their uh, technical musical knowledge. But Francesco, I think this is a good place to end it. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to uh, to hang out. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks to you. It was a really, really interesting chat, like the last time. I think even better this time. It was. So I'm looking forward to the next time. <laughs> Likewise, man. Likewise. Thank you. All right, then. Another URM podcast episode in the bag. Please remember to share our episodes with your friends, as well as post them to your Facebook and Instagram or any social media you use. Please tag me at AL Levy URM Audio at URM Academy. And of course, tag our guests as well. I mean, they really do appreciate it. In addition, do you have any questions for me about anything? Email them to me at al at urm.academy. That's E-Y-A-L at urm.academy. And use the subject line, answer me, al. All right, then. Till next time, happy mixing. You've been listening to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today.